How far out should we look when deciding how to act? Does it matter if we're talking space versus time? If morality demands that I care about all present persons, will it not also demand that I care about all future persons? Can I encompass that level of caring? Or in trying, will I simply embrace the void? anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 249 of Embrace the Void, where we won't stop thinking about tomorrow. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are doing some advanced long-termism, so... Let's make with the psychohistory. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Will McCaskill, an associate professor in philosophy and research fellow at the Global Priorities Institute at the University of Oxford. Will is one of the founders of Effective Altruism and 80,000 Hours, as well as a proponent of long-termism. His new book is What We Owe, The Future. Will, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you. I appreciate your folks reaching out to talk about this. It's, you know, we've done a couple episodes on effective altruism and long-termism and stuff. And it's always been a topic people are interested in. And um, I really enjoyed getting to read your new book and some of the spins you're putting on uh, some of these issues. So glad to have this chat. Well, I'm super happy to be on. So, like I said, we've talked about it a little bit before. I'll put in the show notes episodes on like the basics of these issues. I want to try to get into as much of the details of, you know, the interesting points in your book that I think build on those kind of previous discussions to give folks a little bit of background into sort of where you're coming from, um, you know, in the book's intro, you say you were initially sympathetic to criticisms of long-termism. So maybe you could frame a little bit how how you understand long-termism and what's kind of brought you around on it as a position. Long-termism is the view that positively influencing the long-term future is a key moral priority of our time. And one thing that brought me around and made intuitive this idea of starting to think about the long-term future of um, humanity is starting to see concern for future generations as something like the next stage of moral progress, part of the expanding circle of moral concern. And Mm -hmm. why do we not think very much about future generations? Well, in significant part, I think it's because they're utterly disenfranchised in the world today. You know, they can't vote in our elections, they can't trade or bargain with us, they can't write articles or tweet, and so they get little consideration. But it's, I think, Mm -hmm. just entirely common sense, really, that 
if we positively or negatively impact someone, benefit or harm them, even if that's in essentially a thousand years time, that matters morally kind of just the same as if it was harming or benefiting someone today. And so then when you take those thoughts and combine them with an appreciation of just the sheer scale of the future, the fact that we're probably at the very beginning of history, not the end, and that, you know, if we don't cause our own extinction in the next few centuries, then we might well live for millions of years or even billions of years. Wow, there's just like an awful lot of stake. And so we should be trying to figure out how can we act so as to make, you know, not just the present essentially go well, but, you know, all of the time that's yet to come. Mm. And framed that way, I do think it sort of highlights interesting ways in which your position at least looks similar in form, at least some of the arguments look similar in form to things like kind of pro-life arguments about the unborn in terms of they're often painted as like one of the most marginalized and vulnerable groups because they can't be, you know, they don't have a voice for themselves. Um, and there are similarly sort of concerns about if you start talking about potential persons, either in either of those cases, you can have this kind of concern about a proliferation of, you know, additional entities that we have to be worried about that might sort of throw off our moral intuitions in some way. Do you feel like there are some overlaps there that you uh, think about or struggle with? Well, I think we need to distinguish between potential people and, you know, beings that will be in the future. And then also on the means by which we're helping or benefiting them. So if you just imagine like dropping some glass in a forest and in a hundred years time, someone who is not yet born steps on that glass and cuts themselves. And suppose you knew that was definitely going to happen. Well, that is just clearly kind of a bad thing to do. You've caused harm to someone. And I think that's just entirely common sense. Mm -hmm. And... The debate in terms of pro-life and pro-choice is that, you know, some people think that life begins at conception. I do not think that's correct. And so they think that in the relevant sense, like even very early term abortion is like killing, is like murder. Mm -hmm. That's not something I agree with. Instead, it's like, you know, preventing the future of existence of something, which mm -hmm. might, again, you know, there are lots of ethical issues there. It's a kind of very different thing than if we're thinking, well, okay, we're impacting people who are yet to come. They're not here. They're potential in the sense that they're not born yet. Mm -hmm. But those future generations, like, you know, are going to exist. And so if you're thinking, let's say, about climate change, and we think, okay, well, CO2 emissions that we put into the atmosphere, they, mm -hmm. unless we remove them from the atmosphere, will last for actually like hundreds of thousands of years. And if you think, well, and some of the ge geophysical impacts last that long. And if you think, well, I'm not going to care about the longer term impact of that because these are just potential people. They're people who aren't here yet. It seems like a pretty weak uh, response mm -hmm. in the same way as saying, oh, well, I don't care about, you know, the impacts this will have in other countries because, you know, they're just far away from me in space. That just doesn't seem like a good argument. And I think right. if we... If we think that like distance in space isn't morally relevant, it's not clear why distance in time should be morally relevant either. Right. And these are a lot of the like basic population ethics sorts of arguments that you reference in the book from folks, you know, and and 
I, you know, I think I, I agree with them in the like, I think we all agree with them in the short term, right? All intuitively agree that like, if we have a good reason to think that there's going to be people on the planet in 50 years, then we have an obligation to those people, right? And then it becomes more tricky, though, the farther out we go, right? As as population ethics arguments often point out, right? It becomes like weirder and weirder to talk about what populations will or will not exist 300 years from now. And so it seems like it's a little tricky to say there would there would definitely be those populations and use that kind of they will definitely exist in a way that the unborn child won't definitely exist as a sort of leverage to demand sort of more moral status for them, I guess, than we might intuitively include them in our in our calculus. Does that make sense as a concern? Well, there's, you know, uncertainty about will anyone exist mm. in 300 years? And I'd really like to, you know, help ensure that we do, in fact. Um, but, and, you know, you might think that uncertainty increases into the future. That would make sense. Like there's an increased risk that no one is around in a million years than there are in a thousand years. And so mm-hmm. I don't think we need certainty that um, future people uh, are going to exist in the same way as, um, you know, if I'm considering something that may harm you, you know, I give you a drug and it has a 50-50 chance of killing you. Well, I still shouldn't give you that drug. Um, even if it's a 10% chance of killing you, I shouldn't give you that drug. We need to take into account both the probability of uh, having a certain impact and its mm-hmm. magnitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in these cases, well, we are thinking about future generations that, you know, have a significant probability of existing. And then um, we can think, well, can we make their lives go better or worse? Or at least can we make, you know, the li- yeah, the lives of whoever will exist, you know, they could be living in some mm-hmm. post-apocalyptic uh, scenario. They could be li- living under dictatorship. They could have this like wonderful flourishing um, life. And that's very different, at least from the question of like, you know, bringing beings into existence. Um mm which is important as well. And like, obviously that is something I talk about. Okay. You mentioned decarbonization or or carbon in in there. And this was sort of one of the things you mentioned in your book as a like baseline, the way you think about, you know, when you're trying to figure out if something is, you know, like good by long-termism metrics, you're sort of weighing it against how, you know, like the the value of decarbonization. And that, that one was interesting to me because I think a lot of times when folks think of effective altruism versus long-termism, they think of it sort of like effective altruism is helping people right here, right now, or in the near term. And then long-termism is the like, you know, 300 plus years kind of spectrum. Um, and in that framework, one would think that the decarbonization would be more I guess closer to the short-term uh, sort of addressing climate change stuff than the more long-term kind of, you know, getting into space and things like that. Um, so, why is decarbonism for you decarbonization sort of a a baseline um, to think about long-termism sort of metrics? Uh, I think it's uh, a baseline, in part, significant part because it's so robustly good. So I describe mm-hmm. it in the book as a win, 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 win. And mm-hmm. uh, since 
writing the book, I actually think I've understated it. I should add an extra win in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and why is that? So, okay, there's very near-term health benefits. And when I talk about decarbonization, I'm meaning in particular um, via um, innovation and clean energy. Mm-hmm. Um, like that particular pathway seems just very robustly good to me. So there's near-term health benefits. Um, pollution kills several million people a year, like the pollution just from um, uh, particulates, from uh, fossil fuel burning. Uh, so even in Europe, a pretty unpolluted um, uh, continent, uh, we lose about a year of life expectancy just from um, particulates, from burning fossil fuels. So there's very near-term benefits. There's also... Um, benefits mm-hmm. over the medium to long term um, from climate change. If you're doing um, decarbonization via clean tech, then you're also um, uh, reducing energy poverty in poor countries and um, helping advance tech progress as well. But then the very distinctive thing that um, I don't think people ha- are less likely to have thought about is you're also just preserving a scarce natural resource, which are our fossil fuels. And mm. Uh, I'm hoping and quite optimistic that we will get off fossil fuels over the course of the coming you know, 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things I talk about in my book is at some point, um, it may well be that there's a like, very large-scale catastrophe, something that puts civilization way back before kind of industrial levels of technology. And if that happens, but it falls short of outright extinction, then we may just have to rebuild kind of retrace mm-hmm. the path that we have taken in history. And I discuss kind of how hard is it to do that? Are there any real obstacles kind of stopping us from doing that? And right. again, I come out kind of optimistic that I think we really can. But the thing that is most likely to um, prevent our kind of recovery and rebuilding mm-hmm. of civilization would be if we've used up all of the fossil fuels. And mm, interesting. it might be much, hard, much harder to industrialize if you just don't have access to kind of cheap, the cheap, abundant energy that fossil fuels provide. So, so it, keeping, it, it keeping them yeah. in the ground, yeah, is actually like a little bit of insurance for future generations in case of a collapse too. Right. It's a way to sort of hedge against that kind of large scale risk. Um, put, put, take, maybe take that risk off like the X factor level and take it down to like, you know, it's a setback, but it's not the end of everything for us, kind of. Now, do you then think that, like, decarbonization should replace what what I was thinking of when you were describing this in your book, which is the, like, effective altruism's um, malaria nets, right? That's always the, like, the baseline. You know, if you, you want to do something, you can help people by, like, doing malaria nets. And yeah. I've talked with previous folks about, like, how they're trying to move beyond that mindset a little bit. Do you feel like effective altruism should also be like centering decarbonization as like the most important win, 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 win on the table for presentists? Uh, yeah. So I think I want to say I'm calling it a baseline. Um, and part mm-hmm. of that is because it's so robustly good. It's also just very well understood. You know, none of that was relying on particularly speculative arguments. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of it, in fact, is extremely um, data-based. Um, and then finally, also that could absorb truly enormous amounts of funding, kind of tens of billions of dollars per year could easily be spent mm-hmm. um, uh, accelerating tech progress. Uh, and the kind of relevant baseline within global health and development tends to be give directly, which is simply transferring cash to the poorest people in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you've got uh, a more kind of near-termist perspective, you're really only looking at um, impacts over let's say the next 50 years or 100 years, 
um, how do those two things shake out? Um, it's kind of very hard to tell. Uh, my guess is that we would still want to um, focus on uh, saving the lives of saving lives or transferring ca- transferring cash to the very poorest people in the world. There's just mm-hmm. you know it's really enormous amounts of good that you can do that way, and it's like very concrete. It's about uh, uh, five thousand dollars per life saved if it's via bed nets. So that's just like that is a very high bar. It's a huge amount of good. Um, but, uh, I think like Mm. if you're doing the accounting, um, that really takes into account all of these benefits, uh, then I think, yeah, plausibly it could get much closer than, uh, one might otherwise think. Mm, And yeah, that could make it for an interesting tension potentially between, um, tech that like both techs help people. One tech has that long-term benefit and there might be some small loss to people in the present. And is that a fair trade-off it's an interesting question let me i want to ask about mm-hmm. the what i what i think you described as like these four key moves that you think are sort of essential things to like try to exceed that baseline ways to kind of really improve our trajectory potentially and you get these in a lot of these sorts of um you know work in this area people are often trying to say like here's the here's the things i think we should really focus on and so you talked about uh moral changes ai ascent preventing an engineered pandemic and averting technological stagnation are those the four sort of that you think we should be focusing on and how did you like settle on those as your like key pieces uh yeah so i'll say that list of four is not in any way um exhaustive uh i also talk Mm -hmm. about uh, nuclear war in the book but then there's also Mm -hmm. you know uh potentially like other things too that uh one could um include um among that list so perhaps preventing the rise of authoritarianism i think uh, uh mm-hmm. is also you know something that i could see being extremely important too and i talk a little bit right. about and, it and limitations of course in space like, and, and so much right obviously you have to prioritize some things right. of course but then in terms of why did i focus the things i focus on well i give a framework for thinking about long-term impact where we want to look at events that are highly persistent so they last um an extremely long time um, or like the impact lasts an extremely long time contingent, the impact wouldn't have happened otherwise, and significant actually really makes a difference to the value of the world. And when we take seriously just how long uh, human civilization might last for, where typical mammal species lives about a million years, um, the Earth will remain habitable for about 500 million years, uh, maybe even a billion years. Uh, if one day we were to take to the stars, well, we could actually survive for about a hundred trillion years until the last conventional star formations. These are very big numbers. And mm-hmm. so if there are some things that have kind of indefinitely persistent effects, then mm-hmm. plausibly they become the highest priority things. If we've got this, um, uh, truly long-term perspective. And so what are the two things that, uh, I think could or two events that could happen within our lifetimes that would have such extraordinarily long-term effects. Um, the first and clearest is extinction, like human extinction. If we all die, there's no coming back from that. <laughs> it's not like we're going to spontaneously like reappear. Mm-hmm. And then the second is a little bit more subtle, um, and uh, which is value lock-in. So certain kind of societal states, um, uh, I discuss in particular kind of AI-enabled um, global dictatorship 
um, that again, I think like really could persist, um, Mm -hmm. not just for a very long time, but maybe even indefinitely. And so then the list of things that I discuss are the things that I think are most likely to cause extinction or the things Mm -hmm. that relate or really affect um, the probability of bad value lock-in. And so some of the things on your list, like technological stagnation, that's not because I'm Mm -hmm. worried we'll technologically stagnate forever. Instead, it's because I think that technological stagnation could increase um, uh, extinction risk in particular. Ah, I see. So it's, yeah, so it, it contributes to them. So then, exactly. and I want to get, I want to get into this one more in a second because I, it makes me very, very nervous to even talk about it out loud on a recording. Um, but one of the things you mentioned in there was the preventing an engineered pandemic. Is that the one where you feel like that's like the highest of the like extinction risk kind of factors at the moment? Uh, yeah. So if we're talking about something that kills off um, everyone alive, you know, everyone on the planet uh, without being replaced by some other beings like um, artificial intelligences, uh, that's mm-hmm. the risk that I would put as highest um, okay. and possibly by, by quite a way. Okay. So we'll talk about that. But I also wanted to mention, I really liked in the book how you tied this stuff to the Fermi paradox, which for non-sci-fi uh, folks, philosophy <laughs> folks, it um, this is the sort of paradox of like, why haven't we met anybody in the universe yet? Where is everybody? There are lots of interesting theories about this. And you kind of tie it to one theory, which is the kind of bottleneck theory, which is you know, at, at, there are lots of bottlenecks along the path to getting into the universe and most or all species don't make it through those bottlenecks. And do you feel like these bottlenecks that you're talking about here are sort of like universal ones where every species would like develop through a somewhat similar technological methods and would somewhat be similarly likely to kill themselves off before they make it into space, for example? Uh, yeah, I think the most likely bottlenecks are in our distant history, um, actually. So uh, abiogenesis, um, just the existence mm-hmm. of the first replicators. Um, we have no idea really how that came about. And it could well just be this like astronomically unlikely fluke. Um, you know, think one in a, not just trillion, but one in a trillion, 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 trillion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that's perhaps, um, that could be similarly unlikely is uh, eukaryosis, so the formation of the first um, uh, complex cells with a nucleus, where, again, this is something we just have no idea how it happened. And again, mm-hmm. it could just be this incredible fluke. And uh, that's kind of good news in the sense that mm-hmm. uh, if the like, really hard steps, the thing that's very hard on the pathway to life and explains why we don't see life more widely throughout uh, the galaxy... Uh, that means that we have a sufficient explanation such that there aren't, you know, these really big hard steps or filters ahead of us. Is it possible Um, though, it seems like there could be two kinds of bottlenecks though, right? Extremely unlikely events and extremely likely ones, right? Like what you're describing are the highly unlikely kind of bottlenecks where almost no species you know, almost no planet develops this particular kind of feature. Whereas it seems like there could also be bottlenecks where it's like every species that becomes technologically advanced enough to have any hope of getting off planet will similarly become technologically advanced enough and politically advanced enough to kill itself. 
right? And that maybe happens to 100% of species that make it to our particular level could be a kind of concern in the other direction. Do you think about those, do you think of that like as another like kind of risk that we should be worried about in the present? Uh, I think it's it's possible that that's um, where the filter, the explanation of the Fermi paradox. Um, mm-hmm. However, the thing it seems to me is just, it's hard to get the numbers that high. So mm. there are so many uh, Earth-like planets. There's such a large opportunity where for, um, you know, to have a pathway from Earth-like planets to um, advanced life that the mm-hmm. filter has to be very strong indeed. Um, mm-hmm. So even if it were the case that 99.999% of technologically advanced civilizations destroyed themselves, that remaining 0.00001% would be sufficient that we would see, you know, incredible evidence of life um, uh, all around the galaxy. Uh, but yet we don't see that. So it really mm-hmm. does have to be actually very close to 100% indeed. Um, mm-hmm. And then what? And then it just seems unlikely to me that there could be some mechanism that is just so likely or so predictable for all of these different civilizations that have, you know, we have mm-hmm. supposed evolved on different planets. They all make the same mistake, even if there's, um, I don't know, some physics p- experiment that goes wrong <laughs> and it's just mm-hmm. a very predictable experiment to do and um, has a un- very unpredictable side effect of, uh, you know, destroying, destroying the planet uh, that the species is on, at least some would kind of, you know, be more cautious and not run it, I think. So that's right. why I think it's pretty unlikely that the filter is in the future. Though that's not to say that it couldn't be, you know, very likely indeed that we destroy ourselves in the coming thousand years. It just isn't a universal filter. It just happens to be us. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, I think. And so... Okay, so let's talk about, like, obviously, long-termism. You're not saying, let's all take a break because we learned how to divide and replicate ourselves, right? You're saying we need to still worry about the things that might be in the future that might also be bottlenecks of some sort. Um, and as, as you mentioned, right, you talked about uh, preventing an engineered pandemic. Um, and, you know, I'll I'll grant you for the sake of argument that this is a substantially high risk. Like, I it doesn't seem implausible to me that like people could crunch those numbers and say, this is something that humans can do that could be particularly bad. That like, is not, not as difficult as we would like it to be kind of situation. Um, Where my concern with this one comes in is recently I've been doing some work on like conspiracism in the anti-vaxxer world as part of like skeptic write up kind of stuff. And those folks are already thoroughly convinced that COVID is a engineered bioweapon. Um, mm-hmm. And that that view is driving a lot of sort of new energy into these anti-vaxxer communities. And I, you know, I sat there reading your book worried, like, what if we tell these people this? Like, I'm, I'm going back and forth between these people who think that, like, Klaus Schwab has poisoned everybody with a, a, a man-made vaccine and, like, a man-made um, uh, virus. And then you're like, we need to, you know, heighten our concern about this kind of problem. Um, let, let me ask it this way. When you're doing your long-termism calculus, how do we take into account, like, uh, 
preventing this this factor, right? Presenting, preventing this bottleneck might actually increase the risk of another bottleneck in the form of social instability or like people continuing to distrust medicine to the point of, you know, some new other virulent kind of thing gets loose. Um, you know what I, you know what I mean in terms of like, there could be all these weird knock-on effects because of our weird contingent reality. Uh, I completely understand. And I think in principle, we you know, you should just pay attention to knock-on effects and unintended effects of, um, you know, what one says and what one discusses um, in public. I think in practice, I have just a very strong presumption in favor of just kind of telling the truth and being honest and not trying to uh, double guess um, how people might then take this and misinterpret it and go and do crazy things. Because there are worries about, you know, if you're too, I think it is kind of a couple of reasons, a few reasons. One is just conveying the truth to people who don't act crazily <laughs> um, is just very important and valuable. So um, I think mm -hmm. we should anchor on that. Um, a second is just that if the people who are, say, prone to conspiracy thinking start to realize that, you know, the people who are in pos positions of um, influence or have... Mm -hmm. uh, public voices are guarding what they say in order to like not um fully convey the truth to them yep. well that's not going to help the conspiracy thinking either i know there's no winning yeah. here i just yeah. i just wanted to convey my concern because it like it really does seem i think i think it is something that we should worry about and i worry that we don't have a way to actually take it into consideration or like i don't know what we should be doing whether it's you know, talking about this stuff in certain communities, but not in a way that's hiding it with the assumption that they're always going to pretend that you're hiding it. Like maybe, maybe you're being too cute by half if you go in the other direction and are like too open about it when like in reality, if you wrote, you know, some white papers to some, you know, the CDC or something, like it's not going to cause any huge uh, added effect. Whereas I don't know, I don't know how to deal with the problem. I just am very nervous that we are, going to continue to see ramping up of paranoia about those kinds of issues. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, obviously you don't want to lend legitimacy to that. Um, but it's difficult to talk about these things without implicitly doing so, it seems like. Uh, I think that's right. But again, I think, I think the strategy of trying to, yeah, second guess what mm -hmm. people who are conspiracy theorist minded and modify one's, um, you know, what things one talks about, uh, like, or even, you know, stop telling the truth, the kind of full and honest truth is just mm -hmm. a risky strategy. And honestly, I think that uh, one of the lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic and how respected authorities um, uh, responded to that, actually mm -hmm. just, it, it paid off pretty badly. I mean, I think... Um, you know, there was thoughts of, oh, well, we, uh, you know, should say that masks are ineffective. At least this was true in the UK. And part of the grounds for that is because if we say they are effective, then people will buy them and that will take the uh, mm -hmm. masks away from healthcare workers who need them more. And I'm like, oh, man, as soon as you're like promoting kind of misinformation, you're just getting mm -hmm. yourself in trouble down the line, which happened once 
we didn't have a mask shortage and people really should be wearing masks and suddenly we have to start promoting masks instead. And that itself is really undermining trust in, um, uh, you know, mainstream medical authorities, I think. Yeah, I... It, it seems to me there's a really complex problem here where I think there's a kind of like you're screwed either way during these situations where like I, I do agree with you that I think their messaging was was less than stellar on the mask situation. But I also think, you know, that like lots of folks have pointed out that communication in these situations is a cost benefit of like you can't make it too complex because people won't be able to generally keep up or follow or, or get the information. Yeah. So you try to simplify and simplifications are often not quite right, um, but they are at least useful for most people, but they also create an opening for people to then be critical that you were oversimplifying, et cetera. And so there's no, there's no, like no perfect win. And, and this is another thing that came up in the book. You, I think you, unless I misunderstood this section, you, it sounded like you were suggesting that COVID vaccines should have been made available earlier, like, maybe before we had sort of full write-off on their efficacy. Um, and I totally understand the benefit potentially of doing that if we have, you know, some good reason to think that they're safe and effective, but it hasn't gone through all of those sort of levels of testing that we might ideally want. Um, you're saving lives in the short term in that kind of way. That's particularly valuable. But again, I also think that like, there is this trade-off where we already have these people who have this impression that this was rolled out too quickly. And if you're like doing that other thing even faster and more openly, you know, that that again contributes to that kind of problem. I don't I don't know there's a way to avoid it, but um I do think yeah, I do think it's something to be worried about there. And I'm not sure um, you know, I'm not sure how we yeah, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so my point actually was a little different, which is just that okay. we we could have gotten um, evidence about their efficacy much, much earlier. So mm. I talk about this in the context of, um, you know, how much cultural diversity is there in the world today and where the responses to COVID-19 were actually remarkably uniform. So here was something that not a single country did, which was a human challenge trial, uh, where that is where healthy volunteers, healthy and entirely well-informed volunteers um, say, yep, I'm willing to get um, deliberately infected with uh, the coronavirus in order to help test um, the efficacy of a, a new vaccine. And so the vaccines were developed in January. Uh, the mRNA ones were developed in uh, January 2020. Uh, very shortly after then, uh, you could have had um, groups of willing volunteers who were either paid or doing it because they were altruistic or because um, you know they wanted to help other people. I would have been mm -hmm. one such person. They get um, you know half of the people uh, get vaccinated. Um, they all get deliberately infected with the new coronavirus, and then you know with a matter of weeks uh, or even uh, yeah within a matter of weeks, you then have evidence about how effective is this vaccine? And we would have found out it was very effective. That could have advanced the vaccine rollout by many, many months, saving millions mm -hmm. of lives. And why I did see. we not do that? Because mm -hmm. we weren't allowing fully grown, well-informed adults to willingly accept um, vaccination, like willingly accept infection with COVID-19. Even though we allow people to do all sorts of crazy risky things. We allow people to go horse riding or to play dangerous sports. 
because we kind of respect people's autonomy. So it seems like that was a huge own goal. And then um, mm-hmm. the most striking thing is just no one did it, not a single country. Any country could have done, though. Um, and that suggests that actually we've got quite a lot of uh, cultural homogeneity, more so than we might think. There is like a specific ethical difference there between the horseback riding and the like getting deliberately infected thing where we have, you know, histories of abuse of it by researchers that has led to rules, some of which, you know, like anti-vaxxers don't like because it means that like certain things don't get to be sold, but also, you know, there are rules. They also don't like that, you know, we're not doing double blind placebo studies on these vaccines or something or, or on old vaccines because, it would be fundamentally unethical to like not give some people a vaccination and just see what happens to them. And so like what you're arguing for, I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad argument, but I think it is worth highlighting that, that you're saying, you know, in this crisis situation, we should sort of somewhat roll back what are currently existing sort of protections on individuals for the sake of allowing them to, you know, volunteer in this kind of way. And, you know, I think, first of all, I would worry that then the news story will be government violates ethics rules to deliberately infect human beings with COVID virus to study them, which even if there's a, even if the word consensual is in the article somewhere, right, the headline is the problem. But also there is at least some concern that people would feel in some way coerced into pressured into getting a virus that we don't know a lot about that has substantial long-term effects that we still don't fully understand. Um, you know, and people, people are going to be willing to make that sacrifice, but like, especially if there's a financial incentive involved, some people will also do it for that reason. Uh, so I think, again, there's just kind of a parity argument. I mean, there's two things I want to say. One is it's just about that matter of, you know, benefits and costs, where Mm -hmm. on the cost side of the ledger, the fact that we didn't do this is that millions of people are dead. That's like (laughs) any discussion of the kind of ethics of human challenge trials need to like Mm -hmm. really be paying attention to that fact. And then the second thing is just a parity um, argument where people work, you know, work somewhat dangerous, like, you know, dangerous professions all the time. Um, mm-hmm. We allow people to become firefighters or police officers or scuba diving instructors um, in exchange for payment. And there we don't say, oh, well, are people really being coerced? Maybe there's social pressure to be a firefighter. Um, you know, the financial, are they doing it for the right reasons? No, instead mm-hmm. we say, look, we want need people to be fully informed, 100%. Um, but once people are fully informed, they can mm-hmm. choose how they want to live their life. And uh, certainly in my own case, um, I would have been happy to uh, get the risk of, you know, be infected with coronavirus in order. Mm-hmm. Both, I would have, you know, if there, I had been paid sufficient amount, I would have accepted the payment. Or actually just to help prevent millions of people dying. And for some reason mm-hmm. that... Uh, that um, motivation, <laughs> like people get suspicious of, but I think it's actually a very admirable motivation. And it's bizarre that we um, prevent people from doing that. Um, I think there's a concern that like that kind of ideal of letting people, ad- adults freely consent to put themselves at risk, 
while good in certain situations can also become exploited in a lot of other situations um, that like, you know, you can open up the space too much for people to consent to things that they shouldn't actually be allowed to consent to. I do think there are good reasons for like preventing people from consenting quote unquote to certain kinds of things, even if they feel like they have fully consented to them. That's what we mean often when we talk about things like coercion, right? That like, people consent, but they're, they're being, you know, they're consenting based on incentives that are not the kind of incentives that we would ideally want them to be consenting with. I'm not saying that's happening in this situation, but I don't, I don't think that it's an unreasonable concern to weigh against the other costs that you're mentioning here. Uh, so I completely agree that, um, mm. uh, you know, this in no way is making some sort of libertarian argument that uh, in all and every case, if someone consents, then uh, we should allow that to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Instead, it's actually saying the much more minor thing that this is a case where we could have just set things up such that it was non-coercive, such that it was you know very well-informed people making a decision that um, actually just is a completely reasonable decision and like made, makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and we also even do it for other medical trials. People are um, yeah. For you sure. know, can infect themselves with malaria. I know they get treated, but um, there was uh, yeah, right. There's sort of like there's there's complications there, but yeah, I, I don't I don't mean to say this is like a totally unique situation. I just um, it, you know, I think those, and I guess I wonder a little bit how if long termism, you know, maybe is um, less likely to be concerned about some of those sorts of things compared to the like massive long term benefits. Um, let me ask you another sort of question on the COVID and then we can move on to some other yeah. policy stuff. Maybe a sort of shorter question, but how do y'all think about avoiding the concern that like talking about an engineered pandemic is really a recency bias thing where it's like, here we are living through this pandemic and it's really on your mind right now. And so you're thinking a lot more about that risk factor. And so people work up data that suggests that that is a high risk factor when there might be like another one that just isn't very current in our minds because of the situation. Uh, So I have a great answer to that, which is that we've been promoting concern for engineered pandemics many, many years in advance of covid Okay. Uh, so okay. I, mean, I first started getting to grips with you. Play the Alex Jones. I've been talking about this for years. Maneuver. That's fine. I, I understand. Oh wow! I don't think I've ever been compared <laughs> to Alex Jones before. This is a um, so man, it's this a voidy is a, show. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a voidy. It's, I know. I'm now really seeing the void. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time with those folks, and I end up feeling like I'm staring in a mirror sometimes. So it's okay. it's wow. a joke on me as much as on you. So go ahead. Um, but yeah, so I mean, we've been funding. Um, or Effective Arts more broadly, has been funding things in pandemic preparedness since about 2014. Um, there's been extensive discussion of the risks of engineered pandemics um, uh, since earlier than that as well. There was actually even, so Metaculous, which is this community prediction platform, um, uh, which is kind of is kind of close to the Effective Altruism community, uh, had this question of just what's the chance of a pandemic of a pandemic that kills at least 10 million people occurring within, you know, the years 2016 to 2026. Um, and the risk there was estimated to be about one in three. Um, so in the sense of like assigning substantial probability to this happening, <laughs> like it was mm-hmm. I mean, Mark Lipsitch, uh, uh, epidemiologist mm-hmm. at Harvard made this comment that like COVID-19 was not a, you know, blue black swan event. It was both 
predictable and in fact predicted. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not claiming that effective altruists were like geniuses there. It's just like, actually, that was right. a pretty normal. Um, normal uh, everyday asshole swan event kind of. Standards. Asshole swan event. Exactly. And just yeah. like, you know, leading epidemiologists were like fairly concerned about pandemics. And so, mm. um, yeah, so I think like, yeah, we like the COVID thing is like a big illustration. Um, perhaps, you know, it gives, it changes our, my, you know, it's changed my view in a variety of ways about how we might respond to pandemics where on the one hand, there was a very large societal response, you know, willing, a willingness mm-hmm. to engage in lockdowns for month, like months at a time was not something I maybe would have predicted. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, the extent to which we seem to not be learning a lesson is not something is also not something I would have predicted. <laughs> right. Um, not feeling great on that part of things. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you so know, should COVID-19 enough, you know, make you more or less optimistic? I'm, I'm just, um, I'm not sure. So. Right. But at least as far as an argument for how, how you aren't just succumbing to recency bias, it would be hard for me to push back on that one without sounding like Alex Jones and suggesting that you already <laughs> had foreknowledge and whatnot. So, you know, you win that round. Exactly. I'll give you that one. Yeah. Um, well, obvi- obviously, it's just that like Bill Gates let me know that like he was given the vaccine. I mean, you are, you know, I, right. You know, yeah. <laughs> you have so a background in effective altruism. Knew, like, so you've, you've yeah. clearly been hanging out with the technocrats, you know, planning yeah, exactly. out our dystopian future, which is exactly, exactly. what y'all do. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to yeah. the we'll get to the dystopian planning out in a second. Um, but let me talk about the the one of the other parts, the lock in the value lock in issue in particular, um, you know, People have talked about AI as being a concern there because we're having to try to train the AI in, you know, to act more ethically. And it's going to be based to some extent on what our understanding of ethics is. But you also in there mentioned concern about like basically setting up a one world government could in some sense sort of arrest, um, you know, continued growth. I, I read this as a kind of like states as the laboratories for democracy is the way we put this over here in America where yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Right. All the different states get to do their own thing. Um, but the sort of there's always a trade off right between the sort of confederacy versus federal approach where if we had a one world government, you know, maybe it could better react to climate change or the pandemic, you know, or something like that and thereby, you know, prevent a lot of harm. How do you, you know, think about weighing the like, I want my government effective but I don't want it so effective that it creates a 10,000 year Reich kind of such a problem. Uh, yeah, I think um, it's an important uh, question. Um, and I think, you know, other people I know are maybe more sympathetic to the idea that there should be something like a one world government to reduce the risks of, you know, global catastrophe. I think we can get the best of both worlds where these issues, like let's say climate change, it's like a global public goods problem. Um, I think you can solve that problem without having anything close to something as substantive as, um, you know, a government uh, where if you have, you know, the institutional design um, designs such that you have um, all kind of parties, this would be, you know, 200 countries um, contributing to the reduction of this um, global public's good, global, global public goods. Um, you know, you have to, you have treaties to enforce this, but like ultimately, it is in everyone's interest to be um, engaged, like to be sol- solving climate change. 
It's just that mm-hmm. you need to be able to enforce like everyone kind of participating. And uh-huh. that's not something where you need like extraordinarily strong, in my view, um, uh, you know, this like very strong, powerful government with like, a, you know, a single president, for example. Okay. What about like factors that you also talk about? So let's tie it to the AI problem. I believe you've also, you, you mentioned Bostrom's super intelligence mm-hmm. book yeah. in, in your book as well. Um, obviously that's all sort of interconnected with all this kind of stuff. And in that book, in the chapter about concerns about takeoffs, he talks about sort of monopolar versus bipolar takeoffs in terms of how many AIs mm-hmm. ramp up to super intelligence at the, t- at the same time. And there he talks about a bad one of the really bad scenarios would be if one national government sort of gets ahead of the game and like bootstraps their AI faster than all the other national governments. Um, mm-hmm. And so he says we're at higher risk in a situation like we're in now, right? Where like America and Russia aren't going to be collaborating on their AI intelligence, right? The, they're both going to have their own separate supercomputers in their own secret labs. And they're, you know, similar to other kinds of like nuclear arms races kinds of situations. Um, and and in, that, in that book, Bostrom argues at least one potential solution would be if we, you know, could internationally be pooling resources to create, um, you know, an AI that is sort of working for the global good um, in that kind of way. How do you, you know, like, do you think that there's an argument to be made there that like it's worth risking because especially if you if you think that like the risk of value lock-in isn't actually that high, right? If you think mm-hmm. we're not that far off ethically, where maybe we're missing a few, you know, really high hanging ethical fruit, but like we've worked out a lot of good ethical theories at this point, maybe it's worth pulling the trigger on that lock-in at this point mm-hmm. if it's going to mean, you know, functionality and stability, which we don't seem to have any of right now. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think a few things. So one, again, I just... Um, you know, we do have something of a track record of achieving um, international cooperation in the absence of a world government. So the Montreal Protocol is maybe the the best example where uh, chlorofluorocarbons were destroying the ozone layer. Um, Countries of the world managed to get together and ban chlorofluorocarbons and the ozone layer kind of repaired itself. That was, you know, particularly helpful Particularly like centuries ago, though, that we did that, like decades and decades. I feel like, I guess I, I'm struggling so because was, you're. I think it was in the 1980s. Post, um, 1980s, right? You know, I'm, I'm joking yeah. slightly, but like you're in yeah. post Brexit UK, right? And I'm in the Americas that you know have pulled out of accords, and like you know, at, at any moment we're going to be retaken by Rick Santorum or Rick, you know, like one of these like ultra conservatives who's going to further isolate us from the world. So I guess I, I struggled to think that like we're in a place where we are very collaborative at a global level at the moment. Uh, yeah. I mean, I do think that what direction does the world go in, in terms of mm-hmm. levels of international collaboration is just like mm-hmm. a big factor in terms of how uh, optimistic or pessimistic one is about our ability to navigate these threats. Um, and so, you know, some recent developments, um, like uh like Donald Trump, um like the invasion of Ukraine, um like growing animosity between the US and China have all seemed um yep, pretty bad uh from my perspective. Um and then secondly, I guess it just is a kind of 
a trade-off where, uh, on the one hand, um, you know, you might think like stronger international collaboration, stronger international institutions maybe do reduce these extinction risks. Uh, But on the other hand, they perhaps increase the chance of uh, this risk of Um, Mm lock-in. I think I'm personally just actually a lot more worried by the risk of Um, lock-in, even than I even am by extinction risk, even though I'm like very worried about that too. I'm. I differ from you in thinking like, oh, we're kind of we're basically there in terms of the model truth. I probably think we've mm-hmm. actually got like very far to go, and uh, I think unfortunately, uh, not that many people are that interested in kind of morally reflecting and trying to get to a morally better point of view. And so I think there's a, mm. a lot of ways the future could go, such that actually kind of values get locked in, and we don't make the model progress we need to. We see the untimely end of model progress. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because I think we have made substantial advancements on ethics, but I also agree that, like, broadly speaking, there's a lot of, like, applied work that needs to be done to actually be putting that, you know, out there in the world. And that, you know, is probably the case that I, as an ethicist, have a uh, disproportionate interest in the topic that other people are less interested in. um, And I'm sympathetic to that. I do also sort of wonder how far we really want to go in terms of allowing for a diversity of ethical communities because we're, we're worried about lock-in. Does that like lead to like being in favor of a bunch of very trad regressive communities because, Hey, they're trying something different than modern neoliberalism or something like that. Um, but let me, let me ask you the last, because we're running short on time here. There was one more concern mm-hmm. that um, I think is particularly important in this, in this discussion, which is I really do worry about long-termism and this is a risk other people have raised being sort of taken up and co-opted as a narrative device for particularly rich individuals like Elon Musk and such to, you know, focus on these big sci-fi epic narratives about getting to Mars and things which seem sort of absurd and counter, you know, like counter to what we need to be doing right now as compared to like, it seems like, you know, there could be a lot more benefit if we were, you know, like Musk was just putting all of his energy into like eliminating the existence of billionaires through new legislation or something to increase sort of social stability as opposed to, you know, focusing in on, um, you know, something that it seems to be as deeply implausible in the like in the very near future when we have substantial other risks. And I know that's somewhat of just an argument, a pushback on long termism. But I guess I'm curious if you also worry that some people might take sort of a thinned out version of long-termism and use it to rationalize, you know, space adventurism or something. Uh, yeah. So the idea that, yeah, people might take your ideas and misuse them and um, use them to kind of justify whatever you wanted to do anyway uh, is a major risk. Like, and I think it's a risk. It's a risk even if your ideas are true and noble. I mean, I'm in favor of um, liberal democracy. However, in the colonial era, that was used for some really pretty horrible things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, I think the honest answer is to say the true things, which is, you know, the overall ideals you have and your best guesses at what follows from that and what doesn't follow. So um, taking the example of, you know, like private space flight has really nothing mm-hmm. to do with long-termism. Trying to mm-hmm. get to Mars. It's like, okay, at least there's an argument here. I think like if I think 
you know, where does this lie? Intimate trying to get to Mars in the near term. Like, where does this lie in my long-termist priorities? I'm like, okay, it's definitely not in the top 10, probably not top 20, probably not top 50. I think it like, it can be, you know, it can be inspiring. It can help create new technology. It can help create technology that might be useful for other things like, um, uh, uh, you know, um, like different forms of being able to produce food, for example, mm-hmm. um, especially much more rapidly. But like, we really have some very pressing threats, um, like engineered pandemics, like very rapidly developing AI, like the rise of authoritarianism. And uh, we really need to tackle those before we're able to do um, extensive space settlement um, of the form that you know we could create self uh self-propagating kind of civilizations um beyond earth Mm -hmm. so 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 would you be skeptical of the argument i see sometimes where it's like it's better that someone like musk has all this amassed fortune because he can unilaterally apply it to things that he thinks are you know valuable and like would you say the best thing that someone in a billionaire's position could do would be to figure out how to not be a billionaire anymore for the sake of like overall improvement of the world rather than trying to use that billions in a focused kind of way like that yeah absolutely i mean i think that yeah billionaires have a moral imperative to give away essentially all of their wealth um Mm -hmm. and uh uh you know i mean and thankfully like via these ideas of effective altruism and long-termism um that's starting to happen a bit so uh one person who's influenced by these ideas is Sam Bankman-Fried, um, uh, who um, uh, I think is currently estimated to be worth about thirteen billion, but has publicly said he's given, planning to give away about ninety-nine percent um, of that or more, basically everything he can. And well, planning when, um, like when he dies, or like now. Well, I've actually been um, helping advise on his foundation, so this mm-hmm. year alone he'll give hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so it must mm-hmm. be one of the fastest ramp ups in giving. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that we've seen, uh, and we'll already kind of put him put this into one of the among the largest foundations by distributed money um, mm-hmm. uh, in the world. And then the plan is to kind of scale up even faster than that. So again, I mean, mm-hmm. I think these are pressing problems, and um, there is a tricky question um, that I don't want to prejudge about, like when the optimal time to give is, especially like if you can use you know, capital to get um, further resources that you can then do more good with later. But there's at least a like presumption, I think, like given the scale of the problems that are facing us at the moment and given how pressing they are to really be getting Mm -hmm. money out of the door. And uh, I do think that's, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. it's definitely reassuring um, that people aren't just kind of kidding themselves um, if they really are trying to start, if they really are kind of getting money out the door now rather than, always saving it for the later date because you never know how your values might change over time. But even if you're sincere right. now, perhaps um, uh, when you're, for, you know, in 40 years time, you uh, change your mind. Right. I understand. Um, I think it's a good response. And speaking of pressing, I know you've got another thing to get to. So let me get us into our wrap up here real quick. First, um, I always like to end questions with, you know, is there something that you recommend besides your book, which folks should obviously pick up in terms of like additional resources that you think are really valuable for understanding this material if folks want to dive a little deeper? Uh, sure. Well, so yeah, obviously there's uh, my book, What We Are the Future, um, 
I've got a TED talk is on somewhat similar topics. Um, uh, the kind of single book that's the best compliment is The Precipice by Toby Ord, um, which came out just a couple of years ago. Uh, seeing as this is a philosophy podcast, um, mm. I'll also uh, highlight the late great uh, Derek Parfit and his book, Reasons and Persons, where mm. some of these ideas at least um, uh, stem kind of originally from um, Derek's work. Uh, maybe a final person I'll shout out to is Hilary Graves. Um, we have a, a you know, co-authored paper on a kind of even bolder claim of uh, strong long-termism. She also has excellent work on uh, discounting, which is, um, uh, yeah, again, a kind Mm -hmm. of crucially important issue for the very long term. Awesome. Great. Yes, I'll definitely uh, recommend those. And so now, unfortunately, this means I have to torture you. So this is (laughs) the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. And I should mention, this is going to be the last time on this version. So no pressure, but uh, okay. I am retiring the the round one version of the Enlightening Round. Um, I feel like it's lived a good long life um, and it's time for new things. So you are the last one. All right. So you got to get all the right answers here so we can end on okay, a high note. I'm best. Okay. No pressure. Um, so here's a list of things. And you're going to tell me real or not real. Okay. Yeah. First thing I want to make sure, because you're a philosopher, uh, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what's real. Is the external world real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Definitely real. Free will? Real. Selves or persons? Mm, not real genders not real races not real species not real morality real rights not real knowledge real god or gods not real Society. Real. Money. Real. Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Not real. Holes like a hole in the ground. Not real. Chairs. Real. (laughs) (laughs) Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Beauty. Not real. Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Real. All right. You survived. You gave the last answers. So if anybody. Yeah. How do you feel? Um, yeah, I had to make some quick decisions there, some topics, especially humanism about natural mm. laws and causality. I was like, wow, what do I think about that nowadays? Um, yeah. I haven't, haven't yeah. had a thought about that for quite a while. Yeah, it's always fun to stick them all together. And um, I know you can stick around for bonus stuff, but if folks want to complain to you about how you gave the wrong answers to the very last version of this, um, do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time? 
Uh, yeah, well, um, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Will McCaskill. Best if you want to um, send me angry tweets, um, I will probably read them. Uh, if you're <laughs> interested in uh, getting to grips more with uh, effective altruism, uh, I'd thoroughly recommend um, 80,000hours.org if you're interested in career advice or other advice about how to make an impact. Or if you just want to read more about the ideas, longtermism.com is also interesting. Yeah. And sending him angry tweets absolutely has a substantial long-term benefit. So definitely <laughs> think about that. Uh, no, this has been a lot of fun, Will. I really appreciate it. And folks should obviously check out the book. Um, thanks very much. Great. Thanks so much. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Alex, Beneshek, Jay, Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, I changed this name at the beginning of winter, Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard, Neil Polzin, Chad T, and Jesse Urbanowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter the time frame, you are the void, and the void is you. Mm-hmm.